This is the Master of Cinema Cast. My name is Joachim. And my name is Tom Jennings. And today we are fortunate to have with us the executive editor, executive editor of Movie Mezzanine, uh, also the author of Asghar Fahadi's Life and Cinema, and the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Hello Cinema podcast, Tina Senia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's this is this is a real pleasure. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. No, so, uh, before we start talking about Ruggles of Red Gap, the movie you've chosen for today's episode, I thought we could just talk briefly about your movie background, if that's okay. Definitely. Um, I read on your webpage that at the age of like 25, you had this um, semi midlife crisis where you <laughs> took out a student loan. <laughs> no, 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 and, um, I, I hope it wasn't a midlife crisis at the age of 25. Oh, what is it like? Uh, half midway cri- yeah, midlife well, crisis, yeah. A premature midlife crisis. That's you know exactly <laughs> midlife at twenty five is a bit a bit worrying. To be <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, jeez. Uh, you you took out a loan and then you started studying film. But um, what was kind of the impetus for that? And kind of go into what was film before for you before that point, and how did it change afterwards? Right. So this is this is a. A question that um, that I've been asked a couple of times now, and I think it's important because my relationship to film, I think, is very probably pretty different than most people. Most cinephiles I know uh, grew up watching films. You know, hmm. they can uh, on uh, Peter Labuse's podcast, he asks all of his guests this, you know, the question like, "So, what, what's your first movie memory?" And I don't really have one from like you know, my younger ages, really. I mean, there there were certain films that definitely stood out for me. Um, I believe the one I chose when he asked me that was Mary Poppins, but it's not the kind of thing that I, you know, decided, oh, yes, like, movies, they mean so much to me, and somehow they're going to, you know, figure into my life. I definitely didn't have any epiphanies like that until I was, uh, as you said, in my mid-20s, um, and I saw Blow Up. Um Michelangelo Antonioni movie, which uh, really basically the reason that I latched onto that film was because I saw for the first time a way of watching movies. I think the same way that some people have some, you know, theorists talk about the way of seeing when you look at art. And, Mm. And I thought that Blow Up was an interesting film for me to have this epiphany because it really is the kind of film that you sort of watch I think with wonder and Mm -hmm, there's a bit of a you know cognitive thing going on where it's silent for so long and for someone again who didn't grow up watching movies you know I I think if I'd probably watched it when I was 16 I would have been like okay this is boring you know and (laughs) turned it off or something but at that time I was like this is absolutely fascinating and riveting and the things that are happening in this film right now are just I've never seen this before. So um, it's not like I went back to school just because of one movie, though, as tempting as that sounds, because it makes it sound so much more prof- uh, profound than it really was. But what happened was that, you know, I, I uh, grew up actually being pretty obsessed with theater and music 
in high school. Um, I wanted to become an actor. And when that dream sort of didn't really happen, uh, I started writing for my student newspaper. And I really liked reviewing things, so reviewing movies, reviewing albums. I covered theater in my hometown uh, in Ottawa, Canada for a few years. And I really liked writing about art. And so uh, I just noticed, though, that my writing kind of sucked. <laughs> not, not, not like in a, in a I'm just really bad at what I do, but that I sort of lack that critical eye that I think a lot of critics have that they, you know, develop over time, whether they're autodidacts or whether they receive some kind of formal training. And seeing as I have ADHD and I'm really bad at, at doing things, I figured going back to school might actually be the best route for me to learn uh, how to be, you know, better at, 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 at observing things. Uh, now, why I chose film is because um, I think it's the most accessible form of arts criticism out there. And uh, I'd started watching movies uh, basically in my mid-20s more than I ever had previous to that. So it just seemed like a natural, um, you know, change of course for me compared to me. Like, I, I mean, I read, I read, like, you know, read a lot of music criticism growing up, but I never felt comfortable writing about music. Uh, whereas I find film criticism just a bit more interesting to read and uh, challenging in some ways and I just immediately have more opinions about it than I do with the music. So um, so yeah, that's, that's how I uh, ended up studying film, uh, first with the intention of actually going into film academia and then I decided actually that I was going to um, just become a film critic and hmm. here we are a few years later and I'm still trying to make that happen as a full-time uh, gig, but I'm getting closer and closer to my goal. So, yeah. Was it always like uh, film criticism and film theory that kind of drew your attention, or did you have any interest in other aspects like film production or something? Uh, I definitely think the academia, the the theory part and the the criticism part is what drew me. Hmm. Um, I mean, I just don't, you know, I've always had ideas for making movies, but I don't think. I don't know. I, I don't want to like completely say like, oh, I'll never make movies because maybe somewhere down the line I might I might try that kind of ridiculous endeavor, which is so, <laughs> you know, um, it's it's hard. Right. Uh, but but I definitely was attracted more to what people like to say about film. Hmm. Um, so and I and I just I, I always found it interesting that. You know, I might have a certain opinion about a film and reading someone else's opinion about it, you know, depending on their level of intelligence and eloquence and the way that they're able to compellingly make their argument, uh, how my opinion might change or how it might um, deepen my own, you know, thoughts on it or, or you know, either, either I will become more adamant about my stance or I might become a little more open-minded Mm. Uh, so I always found that really interesting because I do think that, uh, you know, our opinions are very malleable. So I think there's such an art form to criticism that, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting you say that because sometimes I, it, I'll watch a film and I'll absolutely love it. And then I'll read some other critics or some people's opinions on it who absolutely hate it. And it'll make me go back. And like you say, sometimes I sort of, I feel it kind of reinforces the reasons why I like it, and other times it kind of, I sort of think, hmm, well, 
and it kind of what well, well, the other way is like sometimes I won't like a film and other people will love it and that to me is when it kind of like sparks a debate in my own head I'm always instantly kind of attracted to crit- to critics who are a lot like that and sometimes I feel especially at the moment of criticism there's a lot of people who try and kind of say things or do things for the for the like, you know they, they're trying to get clicks or attention in a way I feel sometimes mm-hmm. like people like Armand White sometimes or quite a lot of time actually I think he kind of says things which are kind of deliberately kind of I don't even think he <laughs> believes what he's saying sometimes or and it but the one thing I find about him is he always interests me in a way I'm always quite kind of I will go to his reviews and have a look at them and sometimes it's like oh yeah he does kind of have a point here or something like that and it's it's such a fine line I think with criticism and it's I guess it's the kind of the, the art of mastering language and getting your, your thoughts and opinions down because I think it's something that I struggle to do a lot of the time where I, I, I really want to kind of eloquently put why I love something or why I don't like something and I just can't seem to kind of get the words out in a way which I think kind of does justice to how I feel about them. Hmm. Oh, I, I completely agree with you and I feel the exact same way and I, I actually think that that might be why I'm drawn to film criticism because I do struggle, I think, with you know, my own expression of thoughts. And uh, if I don't take the time and effort to record out loud, you know, in some fashion, whether it is talking or writing, um, how I feel about what I think about a movie, how I feel about it, and really articulate all of those thoughts, then they might get lost in my head. You know, they might just never really become some kind of cogent argument they might just sort of stay they just stay hazy up there in my brain and I I find the the act of writing or the act of talking about it uh, really cements these ideas and it gives me the confidence to to talk about film so I I I think it's it's something that you know I it's funny I used to work uh, for a, a tech support call center uh, you know, when I when I was in high school, and it allowed me to save up money actually, so that I could go to university for my first degree. Um, and I worked with a lot of nerd bros. We'll we'll call them. Um, you know, they were the kind of people who couldn't watch. Th- this was around the time when the second and third Matrix movies were coming out. They could not watch those two movies without actually like they didn't have a critical lens with which to watch these movies. They just embraced them completely and 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 I was like are you serious I mean there are like real problems like serious problems with these two films and I at that point in time I don't think I had the confidence to really address those problems because I just immediately thought to myself well you know I see these problems and these other problems and I'm using the Matrix movies as an example there were far worse examples of movies that they liked um but Anyways, I, at that time I didn't have the confidence to speak up, but I still thought things in my own head. And it was only later that I decided, you know, I, I can talk about these films. And even if I'm not talking on the same page, you know, I'm not on the same wavelength as someone else, uh, I need to put in that effort to actually communicate, you know. I can't just keep it bottled up inside me hmm. and think that I am superior in some way or something like that just because I didn't like a movie that they liked, you know? Uh, so people are completely welcome to their own opinions and, and I should really confront them. I mean, maybe confront is not the best word, but you know what I mean, <laughs> right? Um, so. That's the thing. Uh, when you 
sometimes when I read um, like reviews, I feel like the way the review is communicating it to me is like he's attacking me if I feel like I don't like the film and he enjoys it. He's he's trying to uh, tell me why I'm wrong and why I should love this movie instead of like telling me about his experience and kind of inviting me into his love for the film, his or her love for the film. Oftentimes I find that they just throw like arguments out there yeah. without considering how it's uh, how it's received. I, I, think I love don't... it. Sorry, sorry, sorry there go you ahead. Go. There you go. Um, I was just gonna say that I don't. I don't really. You know, when I'm when I'm writing, one of my editors told me this, and I completely agree. And I try to do this at Movie Magazine as well when I'm editing others' work. I don't think that. Most good film criticism does not begin with that way, you know, like being like, well, these people think this way and this is why they're wrong. I don't like that mm-hmm. approach. I do think that you should just get straight to the point about what you think and let that stand against any other writing out there because that's what it's going to do. Like that is what a conversation about a film is about. And we are in the business of having multiple opinions about mm. a film sort of bounce off of each other. Right. So, Yeah. I think a lot of it comes with your confidence as well. When you can, like, it's like Jean-Luc Godard films. There's a couple that I like. The rest I cannot stand. And I really... And I kind of gave up trying to kind of... I'd sit there on a Sunday afternoon and watch those of his films. I thought, I hate these films. I'm getting nothing out of them. But I try, I, I try and think to myself, I feel like a sellout or something like that for not liking them. And I try and kind of like, right, let's... let's Let's kind of deconstruct them and work out. And as, no matter how hard I tried, I could never find myself really liking his films. And I kind of got to the point where I was like, do you know what? I don't like these, and I'm going to tell you why I don't like them and what annoys me about them. And it's, I think it's, sometimes it's the confidence in finding your voice to express your opinion, even though there are some people who, who say like that cinema began with Goddard and all that kind of thing. And I will happily listen to their opinions, but I also feel now I'm a lot more confident in saying exactly why I don't like his films. And I don't feel that kind of shame, perhaps, that you, perhaps some people would do. Because it's still Luke Goddard, he seems to have this kind of aura about him and that we all right. have to kind of worship and something like that. And it's, it's strange, I mean, it's like when you mentioned the Matrix films. It, it's like, I really like Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> and I could, <laughs> and I, I could probably kind of drivel on for an hour why I think it's actually not that bad. Revolutions is an abomination but it's it, I think sometimes it's just sort of having you just sort of think right I mean especially when you get into film as well and you kind of I think it's quite interesting we said about you know there's that, that one film that changed you and you go from I think being like a casual kind of film viewer to kind of loving it a lot more and I found when I went to university that we, we were kind of watching all kinds of things and Goddard was, was coming up time and time again and I was just like I can't get this and then I tried to get it and I didn't get it, and I think I got it, and I was just like, you know what, I just don't like this, and I'm going to, I feel a lot more confident now saying, I simply don't like this, and here are my reasons. Agree mm. with them or don't agree with them. If you don't agree with them, let's have a chat about it. But it, it's it's a tough one, I think, sometimes. I think you have to kind of like find, I think finding your voice is quite important when it comes to kind of discussing film. Completely, mm. and I, I think there's the, you know, when I was saying earlier about, uh, when you read a piece of criticism and it sort of challenges your own thoughts, I didn't mean, like, I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that, like, oh, you know, you should be impressionable. I think there's a difference, right? Like, there's a, there's, there's, there's sort of like a, a happy uh, medium between, like, you know, being able to read others' work and take in other ideas and be open to those and maybe change your opinion. Uh, and, 
you know, watching a film and having a really strong gut reaction and being like, this is what I think. And after considering all the evidence, right, what, what other people have said, being like, no, I still stick by what, you know, I thought and what I still mm. believe to be true. So, you know, I, I just think that no matter what, you should be open-minded, but you shouldn't be so open-minded, perhaps, that you're just completely impressionable, you know? You mm. should have your own thoughts. On Saying that, I'm yet to hear anyone who has a bad... who. who, who has a bad word to say about Soccer Punch that I agree with. That film is a genius piece of work. <laughs> and I, and, to, and to, to my dying day, I will I will go to my grave saying Soccer Punch is a great film. No matter, no, no matter what anyone says, I will not, I, I simply can't have anything bad said about it. <laughs> I, think, I think my film that's on this, I really, really love Labor Day by Jason Raymond, which came out a few years ago, and no one likes this movie except for me absolutely <laughs> nobody and i will defend it yeah say, similarly it's just not uh, people just love to make fun of it too that's the other thing i think like if it was just a movie yeah like if it was a movie that people just ignored or had completely forgotten about that would be one thing but the fact that you know especially here at home because he's canadian and he's just a, an easy punching bag. And there's lots of movies that he's made that I don't like. But this particular movie, I think, was... Yeah, anyway, so we all have those movies, right? Hmm. And, uh, but yeah, so confidence. It, it's absolutely paramount. And again, I think that was part of the reason why I was drawn to film criticism was that I don't think I... I lack the confidence at the beginning, for sure. And I still feel like sometimes I lack the confidence. So it's something you need. Hmm. When you when you're watching a film, um, like how aware are you of your movie experience as you are watching the film? Uh, is it more of a like reflecting on it afterwards, or do you like gauge your your experience as it's going on? I think I do both. Hmm. I think uh, I think school especially taught me that you need to do both. So, I mean, I don't always take notes when I watch movies. Uh, I usually you know, if I'm if I'm going to like, for example, like for this podcast, I rewatched uh, Ruggles of Again because I hadn't seen it uh, since I think two or three years ago, and so you know, at that time I was taking notes. Um, but I do think that um, it's not always practical to take notes during a film, and you're sort of not necessarily missing out, but sometimes you just need to sort of like sit back and actually take mm. it in. Um, I, I have ADHD and I have an absolutely awful memory. So, you know, it, it makes, it makes movie watching actually somewhat difficult for me. Um, mm -hmm. I find, so I need to be really, really sort of on top of my game. If, if I'm, if I'm going to write about a film, like watching a film just as a leisure activity versus watching a film that I plan on, you know, writing about are two completely different things for me because the former, it's fine if I forget certain details or if I forget the plot of the movie, you know, yeah. I, I just accept that. I go, yep, my memory's not that great. But, you know, the latter I take very seriously because um, in some cases I'm actually being paid for my writing on this film. So I need to be absolutely sure what I saw, right? So, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting you say about, like, concentrating whilst watching films because something I've had to do recently is I've actually banned myself from having my mobile phone in the same room when I'm watching a film. Mm. Like that now I, I put it downstairs because I don't know what, and it's only 
in the age of the smartphone, I think, but for some reason I have this compulsion sometimes to start saying, like, oh, something began and I start checking Facebook or something like that, and it just annoys me so much that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, well, why am I, yeah, why do I need to know what someone had for dinner? <laughs> yeah, it's like, what am I doing? You know, it's like, but I've got, I've got into this habit the past couple of months of doing it, and I found watching films has been so much more rewarding, and I'm like, but why wasn't I doing it? How has this happened that I've become distracted whilst watching films with utter triviality? Yes. And it's like, it's like, it's like I say about like writing notes and things like that. I, I find, I've, I've certainly found it the past few months, I'm just absorbing films so much better for kind of being able to kind of like just shut the world down. After all, that's the, that's kind of the point of watching a film, isn't it? You can you know, shut off for a while and then kind of escape to somewhere else. And I think it's, I can't remember, I think it might have been um, when we had Wes Anthony on, on uh the podcast he was sort of saying that it was something that he'd kind of happened before you know we, we kind of like we don't we, we are distracted by kind of little kind of things that are going on mainly phones but we just kind of like watching a film now has become something where especially when you're at home like just simply shutting everything out and watching it has it's become like you know, for me anyway it's, it's become something i've had to really kind of acknowledge and kind of think well this is actually marring my enjoyment and appreciation of this work and especially when we talk about Ruggles I mean I was completely captivated by it and so into it and I, yeah, a few months ago I'd have been sat there just kind of checking Twitter or just mucking around I'm like, yeah, it's, mm. it's so annoying in a way mm-hmm. I, I agree I think I think uh, you know mobile uh, devices have definitely made this more difficult and I, I try to do the same thing you do like I try to put them you know put it in another room um, because it's like a different headspace yeah, you totally. know, that you have to be in. And throughout the day, if I'm checking my phone, I mean, that's fine. I can, you know, daydream without it causing too many problems, uh, even at work. But, you know, when, when you're doing so, when, when you're trying to actually engage with something, I think you, you need to absolutely be mindful of what it is that you're doing and it requires just a completely for me like a different part of my brain has to kick into gear and um and again like I it's like I find that uh, I don't always necessarily have that sometimes I I can't get into that headspace you know um if I'm too tired or whatever um so yeah I I've sometimes just been like I just start a movie and I have to stop it because I'm like I just can't I'd rather not watch this movie and save it for a time where I can actually enjoy it and properly mm-hmm. um digest it than you know watch it half-assedly and then a month later be like what was that movie again so <laughs> yeah interestingly when I watch films with other people even though I have my phone I'm much less likely to check it because I'm just so aware of, like, I don't want to be the one guy sitting with his phone in his hand. I want to actually watch the movie. But when I'm alone, I'm much more, like, keen or much more uh, likely to pick up my phone because uh, no one's watching me and everything is, like, close by and, yeah. Oh, totally. This is such a first world problem. I mean, this is <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile in Syria. <laughs> God, it's so awful having to watch No, but it's like, I mean, I was in the cinema the other day and I was watching Macbeth, which is a pretty hardcore film to get through. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the breeziest of films you're ever going to watch. And there was just this person about three rows down, uh, sorry, three seats down from him, like constantly checking their phone, was just had a seemingly endless supply of popcorn, which they were munching incredibly loudly. 
and it got to the they weren't they clearly just weren't watching it and in, in, in the end they were like checking their phone and said excuse me can you put that phone down please and they were like oh yeah sorry and I was like what are you doing here anyway <laughs> she was like why have you, you you don't seem to be that interested and it's just that was, it was kind of the catalyst that started this kind of right that's it it's time to get back to basics phone's mm. gone you know shut off and kind of you know certainly get into it more mm. um you um, run the Hello Cinema podcast with uh, Amir Sultani, um, but could you talk like briefly about the the background and motivation for launching that podcast? Definitely, it was it was Amir's idea, and he, having been part of Film Twitter, I think for a while, and you know realizing that he had this knowledge of Iranian cinema, and they, they were movies that people, most people that we know, haven't seen. Uh, he thought it might be a good idea because so many of the Iranian movies that people know, uh, so many cinephiles know, are really limited to a small handful of directors and films themselves. Even even you know certain directors that we that we know of, we're only familiar with certain films of theirs. Um, mm-hmm. We, for example, did an episode, uh, two part episode, if I believe, on Abbas Kiarostami's earlier films just because no one really knows about those movies no one ever talks about them um so you know his interest was in enlightening people on films that western cinephiles haven't necessarily seen or even know about because you know we often sort of have this binary that we describe when we describe i think any national cinema quite frankly um in the case of iran it's definitely very pronounced where we have the movies that make it to the uh you know film festivals and are part of the art house cinema circuit um and then the other films that play in the country itself and there are occasionally more than occasionally i think movies that can fit into both worlds but don't necessarily make it for one reason or another typically you know related to distribution and i think uh farhadi is probably a good example of this because while separation was a tremendous success of course for him his earlier films have now started surfacing and doing really well and it's like well you know they probably could have done just as well when they were actually coming out right Mm. Um, so now they're sort of uh, rede- these older films are rediscovering um, a new market and a new audience in the West. So that was really the impetus for the podcast. And um, he asked me to join because uh, I don't think he wanted to do a- just talk to himself for an hour straight. And I said yes. And and I you know I mean I because I grew up in Canada. My experience with Iranian cinema is far more limited, um, but I was always up for learning more about Iranian movies as well. So, um, mm. and I've read about them, and I've I've watched quite a few. So it I think we made we make a really good duo in that um, he has sort of like the more native background, uh, mm. having seen many of these films even in Iran, because he only came to Canada. Oh, I don't know, like maybe less than a decade ago. So, um, whereas for me, it was it was a completely different experience. For me, it was like, a, I'm rediscovering my heritage through these mm. films, right? So, yeah. How's that experience been for you, like discovering kind of your nation's history or your nation, the culture of your, where you're from? Yeah. It, ju- it just, I mean, it it feels like so daunting. It feels like, you know, no matter how many Iranian movies I could watch, there's like 
500 million more that I'm just never going to get around to. And and what I what I find interesting is that when we do talk about this kind of thing, because Amir can read Farsi and I can't, he his research is far more extensive than than mine because he goes and he finds like Persian critics writing about uh, these films and and sort of talks about the way that they've been you know received in Iran mm. and. To me, it's it's always like a really like that's you know it's it's fascinating. I think it's actually more for me uh, been more eye opening in terms of how Iranians perceive cinema, how Iranians perceive certain films. Um, I I hope to go to Iran in the next few years. I haven't exactly figured out when I'm going to do that, but it's in the works. It's something that I absolutely want to do. I was born there, but we moved when I was two. We lived in Germany for a couple of years, and then we came to Canada. So I am about as white a Persian girl as you can get. Uh, and so, you know, my exposure to my culture is very, very limited, and I want to change that. Hmm. So, And even to talk about, I mean, Iran, if you just say the name Iran, people instantly, I think, have quite a negative feeling yeah. in their head. They don't kind of associate. I mean, to even think about Iranian cinema and anything like that is people just I don't think people a lot of people in the West just don't consider Iran to be somewhere where they'd have like a film culture and people thinking about films I think there's such a negative kind of perception of the country and yet that, if they watch and yet if they watch uh, close up they'll see that it's quite the opposite because totally, totally. you know when you have when you have people who are uh, you know that poor being completely immersed in Iranian cinema and and I mean the thing too is that I, I like to compare Iranian cinema and maybe it's a little blasphemous for me to do this but I do think that there is quite a similarity between Iranian cinema and Persian poetry which is an ancient tradition that goes back how many like you know centuries right uh, and 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 in Iran you don't you don't have to have any kind of schooling really to know classic poems right you don't you know they're just things that you learn even orally to this day and so i i think that cinema being sort of the most accessible art form that's out there uh has the same kind of you know it's, it's it has the same kind of um fascination for iranians so in, in its accessibility and the hmm. fact that just so many people are no who all the directors are and it's and it's this focus on the fact that they actually know who the creators are not they're not just necessarily like obsessed with the the people who star in them which is a mm. very different experience than what we have in the west for the most part right mm -hmm. so uh, i i know here in canada like you know i i was you know if i if i went to work uh i work in an office job and and most people are not exactly cinephiles and i asked them to name me three Canadian filmmakers, I doubt that they'd be able to name me more than one or two, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I always found it interesting. I think I found out through your podcast that, like, filmmakers, Iranian filmmakers uh, that are popular outside of Iran, they're rarely as popular in Iran. This sort of a schism of... Um, the people that, uh, or the films that get out, like Kiristami and Fahadi, um, they're not 
really the most popular filmmakers in Iran. Am I correct? Uh, in yeah, saying that? I, I would say Farhadi is the exception. Um, okay. Farhadi is the one that sort of is able to straddle both the, you know, the the populist line in, mm. in Iranian um, audiences as well as actually, and and it's it's interesting because even though though Farhadi is considered very much to be a celebrated filmmaker around the world and, and has won many awards and his movies play tons of film festivals. There is a bit of snobbishness, I think, among Western cinephiles because his movies aren't, I don't know, visual enough or something. Uh, because hmm. he's, you know, he's seen more to be a screenwriter director than a visual director. And I, and I think that's an awful um, uh, impression to cast on him, quite frankly, mm -hmm. because I do think that he's a very visual filmmaker. I just think mm -hmm. that, you know, his primary strength is in screenwriting, thanks to his background, but that doesn't necessarily mean that his films are any less good. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean it's, the thing, it's the thing about me saying, like, a visual filmmaker, all films are visual. I think it's, it's like, the style that sometimes when people have, like, kind of, like, a... It's, if, it, if their style seems a bit pedestrian where it doesn't draw attention to itself, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people sometimes mistake that for being bland, and it's like... I think when the strengths are in the words and the screenplays, you don't necessarily need to be as exactly kind of draw attention to yourself as a director as, as some do. It's, 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 it's that's another, yeah. It, it surprised me when you see that, and I, I, I read a review of a film again. It said the direction was pedestrian, and I thought, yeah. well, no, the, the strength of this film was the fact that, that I wasn't having to. It the director was showing me and what was going on, and that was enough for the terms of the story was so compelling as it were. Hmm. I also think that the emphasis on story alone is is something that people take issue with. But I also think that they're just sometimes I feel like maybe subconsciously it's it's that they're just trying to compare, trying to make, you know, put some kind of box around Iranian cinema and be like these this is what Iranian movies that mm -hmm. we accept are like and Farhadi is just too, you know, uh, you know, basically it, because it appeals to the middle brow it therefore is yeah. not good enough. And I, hmm. I completely disagree with that. Um, in, in Iran, you'll see uh, more movies that, I mean, you know, it's the same as in most countries, right? Like, there's lots of melodramas. That's a very common, you know, type of story yeah. that's told in Iran. And it's, it's very, very popular. So there's lots of movies that just aren't very good. And they don't make it out of Iran for that reason alone. Hmm. And... Um, but I, I do think that if, you know, if Farhadi, uh, I, I think that thanks to, to Farhadi's works, I'm hoping that we actually get more movies coming out and, and getting more recognition. And, I, and I, I hope that Amir and I can sort of shed more light on some of the lesser known directors that are out there. Uh, he right now is working on a film festival here in Toronto scheduled for the end of this month. And it's going to be uh, basically all the movies that came out in Iran this year that are, you know, really big and hyped and being talked about. Um, they usually show them uh, at the Faj Film Festival, which happens early in the year, every year. And so, uh, you know, maybe... In Iran or in, in Canada? In Iran, in Iran, yeah. yeah. And so, 
you know, it's it's a really good chance to see all these movies that uh, that you may not get a chance to see otherwise, um, because they have limited distribution outside of the country. Uh, so I'm excited for that. And hmm. uh, yeah, our our podcast, if you may have noticed, is currently on hi on hiatus, and mm-hmm. that's just because the two of us have been so busy with other projects that. Um, and, and also just some, you know, like personal life things going on that mm. it's been hard to do the podcast, but we hope to do an episode soon. So great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, today we are talking about, uh, Leah McCary's Ruggles of Red Cap and there are no Iranians in this one as far as I can see. <laughs> uh, but, uh, what is it about Ruggles that made you choose it for this episode? Well, there's a few reasons. I, I will mention, because you said that there are no Iranians, that I do think <laughs> that, the, uh, that the immigrant experience is a big yes. part of this film. And I think that might be one, one reason why I was drawn to it. Now, I'm not an American, and this is very much an American movie, uh, for reasons <laughs> that we're going to get into. But the, but the idea of moving somewhere and being able to sort of restart your life or have more freedom than you're used to, that's definitely mirrors my own experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of, of going from a country where uh, women don't exactly have the most personal freedoms to going to a Western country like Canada. So um, I, I think, you know, in some personal way, uh, maybe I would say even on a subconscious level, it that appealed to me. But I think this film is just so damn funny. And, and, I, and I think that there is such an earnestness here uh, in addition to the comedy that... The combination of the two is really, really hard to pass up. And most, you know, when I, I was, I was looking, I was looking up the movie on Twitter, and I was limited to the people I follow. And it seems like everyone has a very similar reaction when they watch this for the first time. Uh, and that is just of like sheer delight. And and around this time, um, my husband Callum and I were watching a bunch of screwball comedies, and this sort of came up. And it's. It actually follows in some ways uh, certain style, like certain things that you find in screwball comedies, but it lacks any of the sexual romp that mm. you would expect as well from a screwball comedy. So I, yeah, that, that, that's th- those two reasons I think are why I'm so drawn to it. Mm. Uh, Tom, what about your experience with Ruggles? Well, I only watched it for the first time yesterday. And I have to confess, my Friday night ended at about five o'clock Saturday morning. So to say I was a little bit worse for wear yesterday would be an understatement. And um, I, I kind of, I, I didn't know anything about it at all. And having known that, the only thing I knew about it was that I had owned it for quite a long time and never actually seen it. And I have to confess, I, I was absolutely in hysterics. For, a, for the whole hour and a half on it, and I was sort of sat thinking, is this because I'm hungover and I just, I'm a bit sort of in a dopey, stupid mood? And then the more I kind of thought about it, when I woke up this morning, so I went back and I watched it again today, and I thought there's a lot more going on here, I think, than just kind of playing for laughs. Mm. And it's actually kind of like a really touching, poignant story. And I don't know if I went into kind of like over-analysis mode, but I was kind of going back to the whole kind of the Lincoln speech, which I'm sure we're going to get to. And I really kind of thought it was kind of like a, a kind of a celebration of personal freedom. And I will put that in caveats because I'm going to get to that pops when we, we talk about it more. But I absolutely loved this film um, for so many reasons. And I can honestly say, I think it's, 
I think it's one of my favourite films. I think if I were I to do a top 100, I think it might be kind of breaking my top 100. Cause I, oh, wow. Yeah, I just absolutely loved it. I think I have a, I have a massive affection for Charles Lawton anyway. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, the, the experience of watching this, I, yeah, I totally loved it. It was a, a kind of joy from beginning to end. Hmm. Um, for me, I think um, I totally... Um, could appreciate it uh, and I definitely found it very interesting thematically but the humour just doesn't really uh, do anything for me um, so I'm not enjoying it at the same uh, level that you both are mm. obviously but I, I still did really find it like touching and interesting and especially about the the social class system the um, trying to climb uh, the social ladder that Effie is doing and how like the clash between uh, Egbert and Effie and everything that we'll get into all those things are um, they're very interesting to watch and makes for a very it's like a, a very delightful um, even though it doesn't draw any smiles from me hardly but I still find it enjoyable definitely mm-hmm. so um I think I found um, that it was a perfectly satisfactory Sunday morning movie with tea in my hand, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I um, what was I going to say? I think that the the social class thing is extremely important in this film mm. um, because, well, I mean, you know, it's it's sort of contrasting two very different cultures in a way because in England at that time you know having servants and whatnot there's there's just such a long tradition of servitude um, mm. in in that country that I think by that point in time like you know and it's and it's kind of I, I think played up for for laughs in this film but everything that he does is just so precise there's such a way to do it you know when he criticizes the meat sauce for not having you know it still needs a spoonful of this a spoonful of that or whatever like I, I just <laughs> I find all of that really interesting because um you know being a butler really was like uh sort of an honor onto itself right because mm. there is such a level of excellence and level of precision and, and level of perfection um that's required and he takes so much pride in that and and despite being someone else's servant. And so Mm. coming to being forced, really, (laughs) to come to the U.S., uh, to Red Gap, um, you know, it it really, all the experiences that he accrues before he really has that epiphany that he can be his own man. um, Mm. I think it's, it's really interesting because it's not just the fact that you know, he's told to sort of like, okay, we're, we're throwing all of that that you've learned out the window, right? Um, because it's, it's more than just the fact that it's like, okay, we're not treating you really like our butler. We're calling you colonel, and you're just like us. That, I think, is, is an important factor. But in terms of what I'm trying to say about social class, um, he's able to sort of blend what he takes from being a butler and, and having his family, you know, legacy of being a butler into mm. his new life. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's really great is that, is that you don't completely lose sight of who you are as a person, that there is 
enough room in the states really to define who you are and that can include all these all these certain levels of excellence that you've aspired to your entire life it's just that you're changing it in a way to match your own interests for him it's being a restaurateur which i mean it's such a perfect profession for him mm-hmm. you know what i mean <laughs> it's like well i before he was like being hospital in the sense of being a butler now he's being hospital to customers so it's it's a completely different kind of relationship, but he gets to do all these things that he really enjoys. You know, mm-hmm. we we get we get a sense that he loves to do these things with all the scenes that he has with uh, I forget her name right now, but the um, the the lady who uh, is also a servant and who comes to work for him, and they have that sort of romantic uh, mm-hmm. relationship. Like you know, the scene where you know basically he's you know saying, well, we make tea like this and. Uh, you know, because it's tea and I'm British, I get to tell you how to make tea. Um, and she says, well, is there anything that we can have to, to go with this? And he's like, I know just the thing. And, you know, <laughs> they start making it and he's just so at home there. Like, it, it's it's no, there's no question that he, you know, when he's like, well, who is he going to be in America? Well, he is going to be a restaurateur, you know? Hmm. I love that. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, think about this film. It's set in 1908. And yeah. you have to look at um, Europe in 1908. It was ruled, really, by monarchies and the ruling classes. It wasn't a democracy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something that's always kind of interested me. It's kind of like, World War One was a kind of like a turning point for Europe in many ways. You had kind of women kind of getting the vote and becoming like, they weren't just kind of second-class citizens, as it were. And you had a kind of a social awakening. It was a time of revolution as well, mm. where suddenly people were saying like, "Well, actually, no, I don't want to kind of like, especially in Russia and places like that." They were saying like, "You, yeah, we don't want to be kind of at the mercy of the ruling classes." And I think what this, what what I really loved about was, was the fact that you have kind of Ruggles, who's kind of been obviously born into this job, and it's. He's serving this lord, who I absolutely... The lord is probably the funniest person in this film. For lord, is it Lord Bernstein? <laughs> yes. I think he's the Earl of Bernstein. Yeah, he, he's, he, he was putting me into hysterics as well. But it's the fact that you have this kind of Europe that's very much kind of on the brink of massive change. I mean, there are always things that come comes to mind is if you think about the sinking of the Titanic, all the poor people on the Titanic drowned. The rich people didn't. Hmm. And that's what you kind of you see, you see this kind of age where Ruggles is one of the people. If the boat was sinking, he'd be like, "Well, you get on that lifeboat, so I'm just going to wait here and drown." And it's he, it's this kind of Europe on the cusp of change. And when these kind of Americans come into his life, there's a brilliant scene where I can't I can't recall the the, the American's name is in the, in the ridiculous suit, but he says, "I'm well, oh, uh... is that you or me?" Uh, this is me. It's not no. me. It ha- I know it's not me because my alarm doesn't go like that. So. <laughs> uh, no, it's not the alarm. It's the doorbell downstairs. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, but Ruggles, in a way, he knows his place. He is basically there to serve and to be subservient. And then these kind of Americans come into his life. And one of them says to him, um, well, 
you're just like me and I'm just like you or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's such a poignancy to that because he doesn't see that there's any difference at all. Mm. And it's it's kind of like an... I suppose you can always say it's like an innocence about it, but it's this kind of awakening that he undertakes where he suddenly realises that he, he, his life of kind of servitude, and yeah, it's a very noble profession, obviously, for him, and he, he takes great pride in it. But it's this kind of awakening that he goes through, and the fact that he goes to America, which is, you know, we're repeatedly told it's the land of the free, and, you know, anyone could be anything. And he kind of gets out of this kind of old caste system, almost, hmm. goes there, and can suddenly start living how he wants to live. And there's something very, I think... Um, poignant about the film which I did last night when I was laughing at it and when I went back to it this morning kind of watched it on kind of slightly more sober grounds it, it's a very touching film I think mm-hmm. in it in its simplicity and it, it's just little things where you know holding a door open and it's like you go no you go no well I, I, I can't go you know, no you go and it's this kind of like you can see him kind of like kind of like having this awakening and you know, well why am I putting myself in? Why can't I do what I want to do? And I, I think in a way, and when I say kind of like, there are certain caveats, this kind of America being under fear. I mean, he turns up at the house, doesn't he? And there's kind of like a, a, a black woman and a, a Chinese guy who are kind of the servants or something like that. And he make, and it's kind of like, I think it kind of, to me, I was a little bit kind of like, oh, well, it's the land of the free as long as you're white. Yeah. I, I think that was one thing, <laughs> that's one thing I kind of got from it. You know, as long as you're white, Caucasian, then fine fair enough but I, you know, I doubt kind of the, the servants in, in in that house were going to go very far but that that was kind of I, I think when you kind of like look at it superficially when I was laughing at it and when I went back to it this morning and took it on a deeper level I think that's kind of where my appreciation for this film has come from hmm. like watching the the relationship with um between Ruggles and the Earl of Bernstein in the beginning it's kind of interesting to see that he's really guiding the Earl throughout his day when it comes to like matters of propriety and maintaining social standing and he controls kind of what the the Earl is going to wear, what he's going to eat, how he like carries himself basically throughout his day regarding dressing and dining and comportment and whatnot. And you get the sense that they even though there's an inequality there, they're both serving one another in some way. And that kind of falls his his like purpose of serving another person is kind of put into um, fluctuation when he's left without someone to serve. He needs he finds his he finds his own way, as you said, Tina, in the end. But he's that middle portion of the film where he's kind of trying to find himself, as you said, Tom. Yeah, that's very it's a very interesting arc that he goes through. Ruggles. Yeah, and it's it's. It's the fact that I mean, in, I mean, do you watch Downton Abbey? I know it's a guilty pleasure, but I, I watched some of it. Yeah, the, the first like three seasons. Yeah, it, it's it's that thing, you know. They they kind of basic. They're the people that kind of prop these you know, the people up. You know, they can't. They literally can't tie their own shoelaces. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a massive. It, it, and you know, they they need them there to kind of kind of you know, anchor them a little bit. And you know, poor, poor Ruggles, you know, he, he's his life is serving this guy and when you kind of like send him out there on his own it's you know, it's a daunting kind of world but it's it's the fun of the film and the, the, the lord himself i mean he gambles him away that, that, and that's the best part about it you know he's like 
well, yeah, Puggles is like, well, they still have slavery there. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. But he's like, anyway, I lost a hand and anyway, you're going, you're moving to America now. So cool. off you go. And he's just like, oh, okay. And I think he didn't even protest. You know, it's the, that's what makes me laugh so much about it. It's his that, earnestness. He's like, I'm like, I've just been. If someone gamb, if I went to work tomorrow, <laughs> my boss said I've gam, I've gambled you away to another <laughs> agency. I'd be outraged. <laughs> what are you doing? Did you think that less of me that you just like lost me at a game of poker? But he's like, oh, okay, yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, and, and off he goes. It's absolutely brilliant. And the scene that got me was um, when he, he talks about America. You see what Ruggles thinks of America. And it's like stagecoaches and Indians. <laughs> it's just like the poor guy must have his trepidation about going there, but he just goes there anyway. He could easily just not, yeah, you know, he could, like, before he got on the boat, just walk off somewhere and disappear. But out mm. of, like, genuine kind of you know, total commitment to his master, he just goes, yeah, yeah, I'm going, that's fine, no worries. Mm. Yeah. But that, that line about, um, like, it's the land of slaves or something, um, it's kind of, I don't know, it kind of speaks to the brevity or the, the breeziness of the film, the ditziness sort of, where it's kind of a bit a saccharine and sweet interpretation of what America is, really. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a that line about it's a land of slavery. No, 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 not really. And kind of, kind well, of comparing I, I felt, servitude. I thought, I thought that was a little bit ironic, actually. I thought that was a bit of a joke. Cause it's like sort of saying it's a land of slavery. But that's exactly what Ruggles is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I read it. I read it ironically, yeah, but, but I think yeah. it it goes by so quickly that definitely the first time I watched the film, I didn't catch that line. Like I didn't mm. catch it in a in an ironic way. So I agree that it's it's this movie is just so breezy. Um, but I don't I don't want I don't want to say it's too too breezy either because I think unlike some other films that could be compared to it and really I don't think a lot of movies can be compared to this but I was making the screwball comedy comparison for a reason I do mm-hmm. think that the the comedy moves along at such a fast rate in this film um, but there's also like moments of seriousness uh, that you would not see in, in another screwball comedy mm. um, and I think that that's one of uh, Leo McCary's uh, touches actually is having these sort of very poignant scenes that underscore sort of like you know the larger thematic message. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I I agree that like the the fact the the very opening scene that you were describing, Tom, like the fact that he makes all these decisions for the Earl is really interesting to me because it's almost like he's living vicariously. through through his master right because if he's the one making all these decisions then at what point is is it the earl who's wearing you know this outfit or doing this thing and at what point is it really um an expression of ruggles in -hmm. a sense so um i also think that uh one thing that i really like about this is because the that bet that in which he loses ruggles um it's hilarious because you're right, it, it sort of, I think, you know, undermines his value, right? Um, and, the fact, and the fact that, you know, uh, his, himself, like his whole family for generations has been serving the Earl's family. So, you know, they, they go back eons, right? Mm. Um, yeah, and so, so that, that sort of makes it more hilarious. And I think, I think it also makes basically rich people in this movie seem so much more just flaky 
and mm. kind of idiotic in a sense, <laughs> right? Like their riches have led them to just make some really stupid decisions in their lives, right? But they mm. can get away with it because they're rich. And the Americans who take him on are sort of, I think, uh, an exaggerated version of that because they're supposed to be nouveau rich. And I and I think that, that the film is touching upon, you know, the sort of more serious, noble richness that the Earl has versus, like, the more, uh, you know... I, I, I don't even know how to describe uh, Egbert, really. <laughs> um, how can you describe that guy? Like, he is just... He is basically a caricature, but he's, I think he's more than a caricature too, right? He's more than just his checkered suits at the same mm. time. He has real heart and he wants him to be there. And the line that you mentioned earlier about seeing themselves, seeing him and Ruggles as being, you know, the same, I think, uh, accounts for that. So, mm. and, he, and he supports him, right? Like mm. he supports him continuously. Whereas the other character, I can't remember his name, but he's supposed to be, I think, the brother-in-law of, of Effie um, who, who fires him. Um, you know, like the, the great thing about this movie is that anytime you have someone sort of making a big kerfuffle out of the class distinctions, that guy's the bad guy, right? <laughs> and, and in this case, it's that guy. So it's interesting. Uh, I found out doing research for this film that Lawton, he actually was born into uh, servitude himself. I think his father worked as a hotel manager, so he himself worked in a hotel serving other people which like speaks to his disdain for this life of servitude uh, in terms of social class I mean there's like stately homes near where I live and Mm. you know I've been on tours of them and things like that and people were born into this you know Mm. you you were born you were part of the estate so if the estate got sold you you know there was no you you were part of it you know there was no you, you bought the house, the house would go on the market at X value with 17 servants. And you, you were staying there, you know, that was, that was the whole kind of thing. And I, mm-hmm. think, I think the thing about Egbert that I kind of really loved is that he's so kind of naive in a way and probably crass to the eyes of the, the Europeans and the English that he just looks at Ruggles and he's like his new best mate. <laughs> he's like, yeah, come on, he's, he's kind of conspiratorial with him, isn't he? Let's, yeah, let's kind of, let's pretend that we're being conscious when really we're going to have a load of beer. and I, I, I don't know if it presents this overly simplified version of the Americans. I don't, I, I, mean, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how much better. It's like, I, I, I love Egbert for his ways. And he kind of, you know, when Effie's trying to change him and get his moustache trimmed and his suits more kind of, conf, you know, trying to make him conform a little bit more to mm. just how she feels he should be in society. He doesn't. I mean, he... he he has that epiphany as well, like like uh, Ruggles. I mean, he's obviously someone who feels a little bit trapped and he kind of comes in with his checkered suit and he gives her an earful and it's a bit kind of, I don't know, the nagging wife syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be my own man. If you don't like it, off you go. Well, but, the, yeah, the, the other thing too is that it's it's not, I don't think it's just his his uh, sartorial tendencies. It's also <laughs> It's also the way that they want to sort of belong in yeah. their own hometown in terms of, you know, fitting in and, and being invited by all the sort of higher ranking socialites, you mm. know, and he's, I think he sort of runs against that. He embarrasses mm. his wife. Oh, totally. It's also, uh, I think McCary, he's not only, 
I don't, I don't think it's like a sole appraisal of Egbert's uh, lifestyle and just how naive in sorts he is. Because it's also interesting watching like Ruggles and his old world traditions and appreciation of history, tradition, heritage. It kind of enhances his American friends' sense of themselves as Americans and what is their place in the world when he is the only one in the bar who can remember like Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. And the Americans, none of them can remember that speech, but he, he, because he has like this love of history, it kind of makes them appreciate who they are even more. Like he's saying, maybe he's implying that Americans are perhaps too individual or too caught up with themselves. Mm-hmm. Or in a way, trying to be kind of like people they're not. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I took from it. They kind of lost sight of the fact that kind of Lincoln had this. It's one of the greatest speeches ever, isn't it? You know, all men are created. It's such a fundamentally important question to ask. And Mm. the fact that it's kind of still kind of died, you know, died, uh, what's the word? Uh, Dissected. To this mm-hmm. day, that's been you know, the meaning of it, and I think that when when Ruggles is able to kind of repeat it verbatim, and they all start listening, there is a kind of an epiphany going on. You know, what what we're we doing with our lives, and you know, what, what have we become? And it's from that moment on, I think everyone in the film, like most of the male characters, go through this massive change, especially yeah. Ruggles, and he's arrived in this country where he isn't bound by any kind of class system. You know, it is a place where he can be himself and. God knows where he suddenly finds the backer to open this restaurant, but mm. he suddenly yeah he's able to do all these things, and it's it's I think it's one of, to me it's one of those poignant moments in the film. I sort of thought for such a kind of funny jaunty film when he started doing that, I think it kind of went from being a kind of comedy to me to something a little bit more profound, mm-hmm. just by the fact and just for the power of 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 those words and that scene, and. It's the fact that no one can remember. I mean, there's that guy who's, who's fallen, and if you think about that scene, there's that there's that guy who's fallen asleep and he can't remember. The barman just like smacks him off his stool or something <laughs> like that, and it's kind of it's kind of thing. And then it suddenly changes tonally completely, hmm. and you realise it's Ruggles saying the words of someone else, but he makes them his own words in a way, which I think is quite quite a marvellous thing about it. Hmm. He's very much relating it to his own situation when he's speaking to it, and. From like many other McCary films I've seen, um, they seem very interested in like individuals and individuality, but at the same time trying to link that up to, okay, so what are our social and familial responsibilities, and not about like following every self-indulgent whim that they have, but trying to strike that balance between personality and society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how f- yeah. yeah. How familiar are you with McCary's other films? Um, I've only seen uh, this one and Duck Soup mm-hmm. and um, The Awful Truth. Mm. So, but I, I've been reading a lot about um, his work, and uh, it's I I don't want to be like anti-tourism here, but it's kind <laughs> of sad reading reading about how like how little recognition McCary gets I think mm. you know in in when we talk about the great uh, you know filmmakers of the, you know the golden age of Hollywood like it's 
um, it's very discouraging. And I, and I think that there's a really great piece in Senses of Cinema about Leo McCary um, by Paul Harrell. And he talks about that. And, and uh, I believe uh, Robin Wood actually basically wrote an essay on the subject about the fact that, you know, uh, you know it's, not, it's not McCary's problem that we don't consider him an auteur. It's, it's auteurism's problem. Um, th this is the exact quote. Uh, the failure of auteur criticism to meet the challenge of McCary should be seen as casting doubt on the validity of auteurism in its cruder and simpler forms rather than on the value of the McCary oeuvre, which mm. I think is true. And I, and I consider myself an auteurist, but I also sometimes, you know, when he says cruder and simpler forms, I, that exists, right? When we talk about uh, auteurs, we do sometimes, I think, come to generalizations that aren't necessarily the most helpful in, hmm. in helping us understand someone's work. And I think that is true for, for Leo McCary, at least, you know, the, what, I've, what I've read about his other films, um, because he isn't consistent, yet the work that he has done that is considered really good, I think, can be and should be considered as part of a canon of sorts, right? Hmm. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, how, which mo which uh, which movies have you guys seen and or liked? Um, Make way for tomorrow. I think yeah, that that's I what really, the, I was I, gonna. I really enjoyed. There was a couple more as well. I was going through um, Duck Suit, and I saw one. What was it? The Milky Way. I think that's oh, another yes. one that I've I've seen. But I did. I, there was a there, there was a phase on him on cable a while ago, and had quite a lot of these films, and I saw quite a few of them, and. Yeah, I mean, an affair. Did he not do an affair to remember as well? Ah, uh, yes, he did. Carrie Cotton, yes. yeah, because I, re I really like that as well. So there's a few of them in there, but he, he, I think probably one of the things it's like we're talking about kind of his style. He's not a director who visually kind of the. Mm -hmm. He's not the most striking visually mm -hmm. of directors, and I think sometimes when it comes to the whole kind of tourism, I think that sometimes that can count in, against people and directors. I think when you kind of like, when you just know, when a director kind of stays out of the way as well and doesn't kind of draw attention to himself as much, I think mm. sometimes that can be mistaken for being a little bit pedestrian. And, and I think it's that definitely what Wood was aiming for, that cruder version of tourism, like limiting yeah. it to visual style. Yeah, and I, I think that does happen. That, that does, in my experience anyway, that does seem to be something like, something like Michael Mann always kind of sticks to a very similar... Mm -hmm. Type doesn't he? He writes about kind of men, professional men, and it's it's very easy to pick a Michael Mann film out. And I think other directors don't like Ron Howard is still an auteur. Yeah, he's just mm. it's just you wouldn't sort of say Ron Howard's a particularly visually striking director. He seems to kind of I think a lot of people who, who talk about him kind of things he shepherds films through, and perhaps that's something you could say about Liam McCurry. I think, but. He certainly he makes very identifiable to me anyway, identifiable personal films. Mm. So they don't have kind of a, that kind of thematic line that goes through them perhaps that some people would be looking for to kind of say, oh, this guy's on a tour, as it were. Mm. Well, the, the other problem too with McCary was that his, the, the kinds of movies that he made changed, right? Like he made, the fact that he started off 
you know, working for Hal Roach and, and working on all these comedy shorts, I think refined his comedic sensibilities and and that definitely paid off in movies like Ruggles, right? Uh, I think I think one of the best things about that movie, if we're talking about its formal elements, is the comedy, is the timing, is mm. the just the the physicality of some of the jokes too. I mean, you know, uh, well, it's, it's the Charles- editing. I mean, you know, like someone says something, and he just cuts to Ruggles. Kind of his eyes are all over the place. Yeah, mm. and you can see him kind of like internalizing what's being said, like oh, for the love of God! But he doesn't say <laughs> yeah, it. He just like he just looks up or something like that. That's and, right. The facial expressions are yeah. absolutely amazing. And it's just it, one simple cut says so much. You know, just That's go right. from like a kind of a medium long shot to a medium shot of Ruggles, and you just go. There's such an effectiveness of how like McCary captures each scene, where there's there's an effectiveness, yet there's also a delicacy. Like Langdon or he, Lawton, sorry, he's part of many of the shots, but it's not like he's controlling the frame um it seems like mccary lets the frame breathe and captures the other actors as well mm-hmm. and also capturing the production design and red gap itself he's not limited by lawton as an actor i i agree because i think if he'd done that then we he wouldn't have given the like the other character or sorry the other actors in this film are absolutely amazing but mm. i think we talk about them less just because lawton is so good right like mm-hmm. it's like he's just sort of like a, a whole other level but it really requires uh, a director who is as democratic in his filmmaking method as the <laughs> message he likes to give in his movies to to let as you said the scenes breathe mm. and and let the the blocking and the and the lines just sort of come through from the other characters. This is really more of an ensemble cast than mm-hmm. than we than I think some let on, because as strong as strong as Lawton is, I think that there's just some absolutely phenomenal performances from mm. a lot of actors uh, in this film. Um, but anyways, what I was going to say was his when I was talking about McCary's inconsistency was that you know so he so he has this comedic background that he gets and he you know I, I think a lot of his from what I've read a lot of his work is really reflected in some of his own personal background um, for example the fact that he uh, failed to be a boxer um, he failed at a few professions including uh, law and songwriting um, but uh, boxing comes up in certain movies like the Milky Way and the Bells of St. Mary's um, so, so there's a lot of like personal touches that show up in the stories themselves. Um, but from what I understand, and again, I haven't seen these movies, but after the 30s, he sort of gets into more um, tragic, sentimental territory with certain hmm. films of his, and, 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 it, and his style sort of falls out of fashion. So that's where I think uh, the sort of strictest of you know, auteurists who are examining his work might not want to consider him as an auteur because they can't just be like, oh, well, they're all good. You know, he did he did make some duds. So how do you make that work within a system like auteurism? Well, you just can't, really. Hmm. But but I don't I don't think that that means, you know, the, the problem is that when we consider people like uh, Hawks and Hitchcock and, and Lubitsch and, and all, all these people who were working around the same time, I mean, it's uh, it's easy to sort of see their work as enduring and, and creating this sort of lasting legacy, um, but with McCary we don't do that, you know. Hmm. No, 
No, totally. And it's 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 one of those. You know, I, I, having watched this, I really want to go back through his back catalogue and and watch mm-hmm. and, you know watch more of his stuff. I was sort of like, yeah, it's like we talk about it. Kind of epiphany we have when you start really getting into film. I sort of feel like, yeah, damn it, I should I should know more about this guy and I should know more about his films. And it's like, like I said, it's because he doesn't seem to be that he, he doesn't kind of shout out from kind of the from, from cinema history as someone who I should really be looking at. But you go mm. back and watch films this, and it completely stokes my interest. But I think like pre Duck Soup, uh, I think it's very hard to find those early films of his. What? Yeah, I mean, you simply get hold of them on yeah on, on various formats. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, I can't see much demand, unfortunately, for a Leo McCary kind of box set. No. To, to come out anytime soon but hmm. well he he did also write in and direct i believe a lot of laurel laurel and hardy mm-hmm. um uh shorts so i i don't know what's available out there but um definitely that might be a starting point um yeah. but uh w- one thing i wanted to mention was uh one thing i noticed in the awful truth that i thought was really interesting was that that's described as a screwball comedy and I and I'd heard the title before many many times, and I and I only got a chance to watch it for the first time actually this week in preparation for this podcast. And while I was watching it, I'm like, this is moving along kind of slowly, at times. It doesn't. I mean, compared to Ruggles or you know many other screwball comedies, it just felt uh, even at times a little more serious. And I think this goes back to, um, you know, what we were saying earlier about the kind. The, the, the sort of style of humor that he has hmm. the the ending of that movie reminds me a lot of uh, the the Gettysburg uh, address scene in Ruggles in that it has this poignancy that is almost devoid of any comedy and despite it being in a comedy and not and we're not talking about a dramedy we're not talking about something that's like both comedy and drama it is definitely ruggles of red gap is definitely a comedy it's just that Mm. it has these moments where it sort of slows down and Mm -hmm. the awful truth does the same thing you know um i'm thinking particularly the last scene which is so just so understated right like the fact that they can't keep this door open and they're not together yet and then finally it's like basically as a result of this door they're finally able, at the wind, they're finally able to go, well, we should be sleeping in the same bed anyway, right? <laughs> like, I, I think that's such a marvelous ending in the way, it's so understated even the way that they say it, of course, because they can't just go ahead and say, oh, they're sleeping in the same bed. This is Hollywood that we're talking about um, in the 30s um, and uh, with, with, the Holly, oh, with the Hollywood code going on and everything. However, having it in that little, um, the, the clock, with the two people coming out to announce yeah. the time. I think that's that's such a brilliant way of saying it, but it, it's so understated, you know? Mm. And their dialogue throughout that entire exchange is almost tired, and it's not really meant to be funny or amusing, whereas they have quite a few quips against each other throughout the film. And mm. and so, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it reminded me a lot of, of the scene in Ruggles because even though they're completely different scenes, they have a similar pacing you know like things slow Mm -hmm. down for a moment and and we kind of earn a whole new level of appreciation for these characters in Mm -hmm. ruggles we sort of have this appreciation of him becoming uh you know this immigrant who has learned about the american way and actually knows more 
about its traditions and its values more than the Americans themselves. So, yeah, I, I love that. And, and I think that that scene in particular could have played out almost disastrously if it, if it had been in maybe other, like, lesser directors' hands, hmm. because it would have come off as being too patriotic and sort of too heavy-handed in a way. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it's the thing about the Ruggles as well. You think so much happens over the hour and a half, but you never... Con- I, don't think you, I, I didn't find myself ever thinking about the, the practicalities of it all. He goes from being in Paris to someone's, you know, a servant. Next thing, he's, he's in America. And the next thing, he opens a restaurant. And I didn't find myself ever consciously thinking about the kind of impracticalities of all this, or the unlikeliness of it all happening. I think one of the things that this film does so well is that you just kind of get wrapped up in it, and you kind of suspend your disbelief. I think is something I that I I, I found very easy to do in it. And the fact mm. that you know, suddenly um, the Lord turns up in in the town again, it's like. It, it didn't even feel forced or contrived. I think no. I, I think it just happens so effortlessly, yeah. and it, it, it's something I, 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 li- I like about it because you know everyone does it, don't they? Kind of, you can kind of the uh, the Dark Knight Returns, whatever the last Batman film. Everyone's like, well, how did he get from here to there in that in that space of time? <laughs> and it, it's just kind of like you know, nitpicking with, with this. I, I didn't do that at all. I just simply, I just, I just bought it on its own terms, and I think that's yeah. something I, I, I find about his films. I go into them very much, and I, I don't find myself kind of overthinking them. I just kind of get wrapped up in what's going on and enjoy it for what it is, as opposed to kind of thinking about it too much. Hmm. Well, well, I think that is actually one of the most um, important elements in a screwball comedy. And again, this yeah. is this is why it reminds me of a screwball comedy is that it's. Sure, it's zany and it has certain stylistic things that are similar, but even on a narrative level, I think it matches the you know impracticalities of, yeah. of a screwball comedy where you just don't question it, right? Mm-hmm. And that that t- if you it would take away from the enjoyment if you did. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's it's amazing how you you suspend your disbelief for some films and other films you won't. But these are ones where you have to kind of I hate the saying, but you kind of like you leave your brain at the door a little bit. Yeah. Because you don't want you don't want to kind of overanalyze because you just go down the path of sort of you let the trip yourself up and go, well, this is just ridiculous and it doesn't work. And to me, it's and it has its moments. You you know, I think where for all the kind of the zaniness of the darkness it has its kind of like so it has it very point moments where he chucks the guy out of his restaurant for belittling him yeah mm-hmm. and in a way he's, he's been belittled his life his entire life in a way but it's the fact that on this respect on this respect it's so personal what this guy is doing and it's the, it's the moment where he kind of might just completely end his kind of new venture and he's made such an impact on these people that they kind of start singing his name and the Lord gets up and he's like, I want to talk about him a little bit and what a great guy he is. And it's these moments that kind of, for me anyway, made me completely forget about the the implausibility of it all, I suppose. Not that I was... But in, in a way, I, I just kind of like... It, it, it kind of made me root for the film and root for him without kind of thinking about it in a more kind of practical way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I definitely warmed up to Lawton as the film went on. Like in the, in the beginning, I, it was kind of 
I had to get into his mannerisms and get into his like timing and delivery because it's a little it felt a little off at first and it took me a little time to like settle into his style but as as he gets more comfortable like in the states I also get more comfortable with his performance and his character and I definitely am on his side uh more as the film goes on yeah well he becomes pretty i think uh endearing when mm-hmm. he gets drunk yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. uh the the scene invo- where where they he keeps being like after you to to get into the the coach and then mm-hmm. he finally goes <laughs> yeah. in and then disappears around the other side <laughs> it's one of the funniest gags i think i've ever seen in a movie um yeah and yeah it's completely plays on the ridiculous it's like he can't he can't he, He's so subservient that he can't let this person get in before him. Hmm. Yeah. And he just he plays it out visually, a kind of a social kind of positioning in his life perfectly, like the ludicrousness of it. Just hmm. going round and round and round. You know, it's brilliant. Um, I don't I don't know if you guys discovered this when you were researching the film, but one thing I found out about McCary was that he would actually improvise certain scenes during the shoot, which hmm. I thought was really interesting. Um, I didn't find any notable examples for Ruggles, but I thought it was interesting that he did this in any capacity because uh, I would I would have imagined sort of st- a stricter script control, right, mm-hmm. um, on a studio uh, production. But uh, I thought it was really fascinating because I guess maybe it had something to do with his background coming up with gags. Like, you know, he went from being uh, a gag man to the vice president while he was at Hal Roach. So quite a jump but having I think done so much work just coming up with like actual just like you know moment to moment gags um, must have given him some appreciation and experience in just coming up with certain ideas and certain scenes um, and and what he would do apparently because he did he did grow up as a you know playing music and and as a as a pianist and he would go and just play ragtime for an hour or two and think of ideas for the movie <laughs> that he was currently shooting and then come back and be like, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> um, which which I thought was so funny. Um, I think, actually, one of the scenes that he does do at Foreign Ruggles is, uh, you know the scene when when Earl is, is meeting... Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, is it is her name Nettie? N- Nell. Nell. Sorry, Nell. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he he's completely smitten with her uh, and keeps asking like, do you believe in love and you know first sight and whatnot? Um, and uh, they're trying to play music together, and so mm-hmm. she's trying to teach him how to play the drum, like keep rhythm with. I believe that scene is actually improvised, um, <laughs> and and it's it's one of the sweeter moments in that movie. It's it's kind of a digressive moment. But I, mm-hmm. I think it, it adds definitely to the film. Hmm. No, totally. Yeah. It, and and yeah. it's like, I, I'm glad the Earl kind of sorts himself out in the end. Yeah. Because he is kind of pathetic, isn't he? It's like, oh, yeah. no, well, I've, got, I've lost you in, a, in, in betting. And, uh, but all the, all the characters... I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. Off you go. But it's like, it, 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 it's in his own kind of stilted way, you, know, you can tell he genuinely really loves her. Yeah. it's like he, he, yeah. he can't quite bring himself to say it and he's like playing drums but you know it's just brilliant I love it and he, when he's when uh, I think Ruggles is saying he can't come back he's like oh well, why is that old chap and he's like oh wait, I've had this I've had this kind of 
moment here and I've decided that I want to stay. And he's not like, doesn't start begging him. He's like, no, never mind, you know. And then he's like, he kind of, he's, he's on Ruggles' side. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think I was, I was, I was quite glad that he uh, mm-hmm. kind of yeah. comes across as being a good guy in the end. Yep. Like all the characters that um, we are, like, except for Effie and her brother-in-law, all of them go through some sort of change for the better, it seems, where everyone is rooting for Ruggles and everyone, we, we care basically about everyone. And there's there's added strength and added depth to almost every character that we come in contact with throughout the film. I think that's like that speaks to McCarry's handling of the film, how he can take even the smallest characters and give us something more than just that surface surface value. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a bit of a um, like a, it's a wonderful life type thing. Uh, what's his name? Frank Capra is it? Mm-hmm. It has that kind of like everyone, you know, the community coming together and getting behind the little man. I think there's an element of that to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. One other thing I wanted to talk about briefly, we've been talking about Lawton for quite a bit, but I just, I love how he, his mannerisms, as I talked about, how it, you, you kind of warm up to him and you, when you get into his tune, it took me a little while, but when you get into it, he he completely captures the film for me. And it was interesting just watching how mm, precise he is. Even though um, he's playing something, someone that's losing more and more control of himself or letting himself more and more go, you can tell that this is a man with great control of his craft. Mm-hmm. I, mean, he's a com- I mean, Charles Lawton's a great actor. He's one of my favourite actors, actually, out you know, ever, really. And the thing, the thing about... This performance is, is the subtle, it's the eye movements, and it's the it's the little things like you know, when he you know, lighting a cigarette when he uh, when he thinks that it's all over and he doesn't kind of break down and start kind of screaming yeah. and shouting. He's just sort of like, well, well, it's over now. And she says to him, oh, he says, I'm not I'm not really bothered. He goes, yes, you are, and you can tell he is. And it's just that kind of the fact that he's kind of letting his guard down and he's having a fag and he looks a bit sort of sad and down. You can tell it's it's massively affected him. But mm-hmm. he doesn't start screaming and shouting. It's just this, this very kind of subtle movements and a kind of look on his face. And just his eyes give it away so much yeah. of the time. And I think it's, it's, it's strange to say that, that the performance is in someone's eyes, but in this it really is. And it's, it's all about nuance and timing and subtlety. And he pulls it off and he makes a character who isn't very expressive become incredibly expressive you know exactly how he's feeling you know exactly his emotions you know exactly what he's thinking and it's all just through the most subtlest of touches and it's again it's, it's not the Al Pacino school of acting he's not shouting and screaming and, and rolling over on the floor it's just all very understated and never kind of bubbles to the surface it's a bit like um someone like Glenn Close in The Devil Wears Prada she never raises a voice in that film but you know exactly mm. what she's doing it's a masterclass in performance and I kind of got the same thing off, off this I, I, it's yeah, I think it's a, a truly great performance without ever kind of... It's, it's making acting seem incredibly effortless. I think yeah. that's what he does in this. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about, any of you? Uh, I don't think so. No, no, I think that's it for me. Yeah. Um, so we can start 
kind of wrapping up this episode um just a final quick words from me about how i felt about the film i think that that culture clash comedy that we see it has like this gentle gentle style of humor i think i would phrase it it has these wrappings of this kind of ditzy comedy where the surface is kind of this light affair but when you get down to it it has far more substance and far more strength and depth to his characters and it really elevates it to something else and how it deals with kind of the social class system and egalitarianism and like the very ideals of American society I think that's quite profound and it may be a bit overloaded with sentimentality and patriotism but it does so like in such a pure and very beautiful manner that um, I can't help but really enjoy this film, yeah. What about you, Tina, some final words? Yeah, definitely. Just to pick up on what you said about what it, is, what it says about America, I don't consider myself uh, a nationalist at all. And, <laughs> and when, I, when I see films that are about patriotism, particularly American patriotism, I just... I just want to vomit. Like, I'm sorry. It's not, it's, they, they never appeal to me. But I think this movie is actually the exception, mm. which, which for me is just such a, it was, it was a huge surprise when I watched it. Uh, and, and I think that it, it has, it captures a sense of not just what America is, but what it should be or the idea of what America is in a way that is very aspirational in, in a very pure, and innocent way that no one can really sort of um, look down upon, right? Mm. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, based on its themes, I, I think it's great. And I just think that it's one of the, one of, you know, probably one of McCary's uh, greater accomplishments, um, given this combination of both the, you know, the, the zaniness and, and the nonstop comedy, but also this deeper emotional resonance that it has. Mm. So. And Tom, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I, I, did, I didn't know quite what to expect of it. I didn't really know anything about it either. And I went to this film completely kind of blind, as it were. And it, it's, come, it's one of the best, it's, it's one of the most funnest experiences I've ever, I've ever had watching a film. And mm. I, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely entered my kind of, you know, my, it's become one of my favourite films. I think definitely I, I can go I, endlessly rewatchable. I think there's so many layers to it, and there's so many, there's so much to enjoy about it that I I can't recommend it enough. Really, it's it's an absolute brilliant choice. And uh, yeah, thanks to Tina because I I owned this film because obviously Master Cinema stuck a spine number on it, so I bought it blindly. I've <laughs> never have wa- never watched it since. So as soon as Tina, I, I even when even when you said we're doing Ruggles of Red Gap, I was like, what the hell's that? I don't even remember buying this. And, and as I was going on my shelf, I was like, right, number thirty-five. Oh, here we go. And uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. So it was a brilliant experience, and uh, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. Hmm. Unfortunately, I didn't have that release um, here with me uh, where I'm living now. So I had to watch like a crappy YouTube version of it. Um, but did you get a chance to watch any of the supplements, Tom, for this one? Um, I've only read the the notes that came to the book. I haven't actually watched any of the other ones yet, no. But I will go back and watch them because um, mm. they're, they're, yeah, obviously I'm going to kind of like inform my opinion on it. But yeah, the, the booklet that came with it was actually really interesting, so... Okay. Tina, what uh, version did you watch? Which uh, company has released it in the US? I I just watched a version of it online. So. Okay. <laughs> I can't Are you saying you downloaded it illegally? 
Was that what you were trying to say? No comments. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Tina, uh, tell us what's in your future as a critic and uh, perhaps podcast as well. Uh, well, right now I've been writing pretty steadily for the Globe and Mail, which is one of the two national newspapers here in Canada. Hmm. Um, and uh, to be honest, I don't, I don't really know what's, uh, what's next up for me. Um, there is a possibility that I might be interviewing Atlas Kiarostomy, actually. Oh, wow. So if that, if that happens, that will be... I think the highlight of my career because he's my favorite filmmaker of all time. So, hmm. um, yeah, we'll see what, what happens. Fingers crossed Great. that it works out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the podcast is still just uh, up in the air. Yeah, we, I mean, we definitely want to continue with it, but uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really rough year for both of us in terms of time mm-hmm. um, for different reasons for both of us. So, it's hard to say right now, but there's just so much going on with the Iranian cinema that, you know, it obviously has its place and I think we should continue doing it. So Definitely. hopefully, hopefully that will uh, come back. Um, and uh, very, very soon. And I'll let you guys know when it does. So no, definitely do so. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, to all other listeners who haven't listened to the Hello Cinema podcast, their archive episodes are definitely worth listening to. So definitely. please do that. Um, Tom, what about you? Um, well, currently I am still in the process of making the Manchester version of the Quiet Safe film. So I haven't really got much time for doing any other kind of podcasting activities at the moment. So um, if you see me around Manchester with a depressed look on my face filming a time lapse, please do come and say hello. Because <laughs> I, I, I will be cold, miserable, and bored, and could do with the company. But don't do what people keep doing, which is looking in the camera and saying, <laughs> What are you filming? Because that means I have to start again and spend another hour cold, bored, and miserable filming the same thing. Yeah. So, so as soon as that's out of the way, hopefully I'll get some more episodes out of 24 Frames Club. Great. Um, and we are actually recording another episode next week. So, um, And I'm really excited about that one um, as we are getting a, uh, a psychologist from the BBC to talk about it. So it will be something different than what we are usually doing. Um, so, uh, listeners, you can follow us on moccast.blogspot.com. Um, contact us on mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com or on Twitter or on Facebook. Just search for Masters of Cinemacast. Um, I will be going into my exam period now, so uh, after the next one, uh, it will probably be the last like regular episode that we will be doing this year. But uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening, and thank you both for joining us, uh, joining me. Sorry. <laughs> Cheers, Rachel. Thank you so much. Um, and until next time, thank you and goodbye.